0: I'm going, I don't know if this will work or not, but I'm going to ask for a volunteer who knows a thing or two about baking to come up. We're going to play, we're going to have a little game show. Somebody who knows something about baking who would like to come up. Come on, I need somebody, anybody. I, I promise it's not, oh, Barry, had a boy. All right. So this may not work, but Barry, I want you to try your best to answer these questions. The scenario is that we are making chocolate chip cookies, okay? but things are going wrong, I keep reading the recipe wrong, and you will explain what the mistake is and what the consequences are. Okay. So, the recipe calls for two large eggs, but I haven't got any eggs, Barry. What will happen to our cookies if I don't add eggs? What's this got to do with bacon? Baking! (laughs) Oh, baking! I heard bacon! (laughs) No, not bacon. Baking. So you sit down. (laughs) Okay. Okay. No eggs, they won't rise properly. Anything else? Anything else that will happen if you don't have eggs? They'll taste funny. will taste funny. Eggs add flavor. They add texture. They also bind the ingredients together, so it'll be crumbly and not as good. Yeah. I do. I I studied my baking yesterday. Um, Barry, the recipe also calls for three-quarter teaspoons... Yes, you can phone a friend, yeah. You can phone any friend. Okay, okay. So, our recipe calls for three-quarter teaspoon of baking soda, but I only have baking powder handy, so I toss that in instead. What will happen to our cookies? Kate Lorraine, lifeline. (laughs) Lorraine, what will happen to our cookies? Baking powder makes them poof up too much. That's right, you're right. Baking soda needs an acid baking powder has baking soda in it as well as an acid so it will double rise in the heat so Lorraine you are right good job (laughs) I didn't know that until last night Barry number three the recipe calls for one teaspoon of salt but I don't think there's a difference so I grab a tablespoon instead what will happen to our cookies I don't think it's a big deal (laughs) all right you and me both what are we doing up here what is the difference anybody between a teaspoon and a tablespoon A lot. A teaspoon is smaller. But I mean, salt is tasty. (laughs) Okay. Okay. There you go. Barry likes his cookies extra salty. (laughs) The difference between a teaspoon and a tablespoon is three teaspoons in a tablespoon? Okay. Okay. There you go. And finally, Barry, our chocolate chip cookies require one last dry ingredient... Chocolate chips. In fact, a 12-ounce bag of semi-sweet chocolate chips. Problem, there are none in our house, which is actually not ever a problem at the Lance residence. We always have chocolate chips. But question, can you still call it a chocolate chip cookie if you happen to leave out the chocolate chips? Is it even a cookie anymore? What will happen to our baked goods if there's no chocolate chips? We'll give them to our chickens. (laughs) That's right, because a chocolate chip cookie with no chocolate chips is essentially garbage. That's right. All right. Thank you, Barry. You win. Today's, um, I've got poppy seed cake for you downstairs. Yeah. You are the first and only ever contestant on Bake Mistakes with Pastor Lance. So congratulations. The point of this pointless exercise was this. If you miss certain ingredients, like if you think you're baking and you're actually thinking of bacon, for example. <laughs> point is this. If you miss certain ingredients like eggs or butter, there will be negative consequences for your final product. If you add the wrong amount, like a tablespoon instead of a teaspoon, there will be negative consequences for your final product. If you use a product that is similar but not quite right, like baking powder instead of baking soda, there will be negative consequences for your final product. And finally, If you neglect the very thing that gives something its name, then you have the most drastic consequence of all. You don't even have the thing you think that you have at all. What's a chocolate chip cookie without chocolate chips? Just a cookie. and Nobody wants just a cookie. You need some chocolate in there. You have something completely different that cannot share a name with what you intended it to be. In baking, you need all the ingredients, but some are more crucial than others. And that is the thing that we will see for our own faith as we continue exploring the missions work of Paul the Apostle. In today's passage, Paul will wrap up his second missions trip, which was around Macedonia and Achaea. so that's the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth, um, to modern-day Greece. He wraps up that second missions trip, and then heads back to Jerusalem for returning to Asia Minor, where he had been before, for his third missions trip. Along the way, we will meet some fascinating new characters. But the thing that unites all of these stories, wrapping up one mission strip, starting another, meeting these new characters, the thing that unites all, the thing that is the egg, Barry, that binds the ingredients together, um, is one common ingredient. Sometimes we find this ingredient in our story in abundance. And the result is an excellent finished product. A perfectly baked, perfectly textured, deliciously finished chocolate chip cookie type of faith. A type of faith that is you want to sink your teeth into. Other times, however, we will see that this crucial ingredient is missing and must be added by the heavenly baker for the followers to take on the flavor and take on the name that they require. Without this crucial ingredient, they are incomplete and perhaps can't even be called disciples at all. So, let's begin by reading about the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey to the Gentiles in verses 18 to 23 of Acts chapter 18. So, this is uh, coming out of his stay in Corinth. Corinth, we called it Sin City, because that's what it was. But Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Cantrea. Or, I don't know how to say, it. Sentre, it's probably Centrea. Whatever. Sancrea. That's what we're going to settle on today. Sancrea. It's not important. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Spoiler alert, it is God's will. He does come back. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, Strengthening all the disciples. So, it's part one of our three-part sermon today. Thanks to Gallio's de- decision not to exclude the Christians from the protection of Rome, that's what we looked at last week. If Gallio would have said, You're right, Jewish uh, antagonists, the Christians are totally different from you, and we don't like them, so we're going to punish them. If that's what Gallio would have said, things would have turned out very differently for the history of the church. But Gallio kind of offhandedly, dismissively says, No, they are basically Jews, so we're going to protect them like Jews, and they have all the rights of, that you Jewish believers have. And because of that decision um, and the privilege entailed in it, Paul and his team were free to minister without fear of either Roman or Gentile reprisal. They could do whatever they want, preaching the gospel as long as they stayed within Roman law. So Paul, because of that, was free to stay in Sin City, Corinth, for quite a while perhaps another six months or so, until it came time for Paul to head back to the two home bases of the church. So he goes to Jerusalem, which is like the, the Jewish Christian home base. It's where everything started. And he goes to Antioch, which is the Gentile Christian home base. And that had been his commissioning church. They're the ones who had sent Paul out on these missions trips in the first place. Paul apparently, rare for Paul, apparently he took this trip by himself. He didn't have any companion. Priscilla and Aquila crossed the Aegean Sea with him but he dumped them off at Ephesus and did the rest of the trip solo, Um, which means he probably treated it like a bit of um, respite, a time for refreshment and relaxation. Even though this journey totaled around 3,000 miles altogether and may have taken many months to complete, we have very few details about what happened um, in this part of Paul's life because he was solo. But what we do know about this time that we just read is relatively beautiful. And there's a lot of geography, so I've brought in the big map omissions to clarify. So, before beginning this journey, Paul went down to the port city of Sincrea. They went from Corinth to Sancreia, which is just a few miles away. And there, he cut off all his hair. That may sound weird, but it was actually a fairly common practice among Jewish men. Um, It was an, an act of worship upon completing a vow. Most likely, the vow began when the Holy Spirit gave Paul a vision in verses 9 to 10. Remember, Paul was falling into that familiar cycle, preaching to the Jews. Jews reject him, so he goes to the Gentile. Tons of success among the Gentiles, and Paul knew what would happen next. The Jews would get jealous, and they would start to persecute him. So before that could happen, he was feeling really despondent, really down, and God sends him a vision that says, um, verses 9 to 10, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm me because I have many people in the city. So probably after getting that boost of encouragement, Paul made a vow that he would grow his hair out as a pledge of appreciation for the protection promised to him by the Holy Spirit. Eventually, the time came to leave Corinth. And since the Holy Spirit had fulfilled his end of the bargain, considering all of Paul's time in Corinth had been persecution free, not a single beating, stoning, imprisonment at all. So the Holy Spirit held up his end of the bargain, and so Paul shaved his hair off and put it in a bag in order to offer it to God in the temple in Jerusalem as an act of thanksgiving. And if I'm God, I'm thinking, uh, thanks, Paulie boy, how about you stick to cash next time? Thanks for your hair, what am I going to do with that? But maybe that's just my jealousy coming through because he could offer something that I sadly could not. Um, either way, Paul's actions in Sencrea represent the fulfillment of a prophet prop promise represents the fulfillment of a prophet promise oh. oh, i love that paul's actions represent the fulfillment of a promise made by the spirit of jesus to a despondent and depressed disciple and it also represents the fulfillment of a pro, promise from that same encouraged and enlightened disciple back to the spirit of jesus so the holy spirit fulfilled his end of the bargain so now paul's fulfilling his end It's actually a really beautiful thing. From Sancreia, Paul sails across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus, the city he had attempted to enter many months ago. In fact, way back in chapter 16, at the beginning of his second missions trip. um, But his desire to enter the greatest city in Asia Minor was scuttled by something. Do you remember what it was? Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, but he didn't. Do you remember why that was? If you want to cheat and turn back to chapter 16, you go ahead. Why was it he didn't go to Ephesus and instead went to Philippi and Macedonia? What was the thing that stopped him? What stopped Paul from entering Ephesus and instead sent him north to Philippi was an even earlier vision from the Holy Spirit. Paul was asleep. He has a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come here. So don't stay down there in Asia Minor. The vision says, come up to here. And so he does because of that vision from the Holy Spirit. So... That was the reason why Paul ended up in those great cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and did great work. And because he ended up in Corinth, Gallio gave him this decision says, you're free. Because this man, this vision of this man from Macedonia said, come here. That was the Holy Spirit at work. But now, several years later, Paul returns to Ephesus, the place he had wanted to be for, for many years now, where he finds something very unusual. He something happens that we read about here in in Ephesus that was very rare for Paul, and that was faithful Jews who are willing to engage in conversation about Jesus the Messiah. The Jewish people population here, they didn't run him out of town. They didn't persecute Paul. In fact, they asked him to stay and teach some more, and it's Paul who says, no, sorry, actually, I gotta go. Paul discerns the Holy Spirit telling him that now is not the time to stay for an extended time in Ephesus. But he promises that God willing, He will return to Ephesus and continue the ministry. In the meantime, Paul leaves behind his two trusted friends, Priscilla and Aquila, to begin laying the foundation for a community of believers amongst the Ephesians. He then sets off for the Holy Land. There he goes. That's a big trip. Landing in Caesarea, which is kind of the port town for Jerusalem, before ending up in Jerusalem. He probably takes part in the Passover. But he certainly takes his bag of hair and leaves it at the temple, which is, again, very strange. But it's his little offering of thanks. He likely met with the mother church there and encouraged them that, hey, God is at work among the Gentiles. The Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, not very missions-oriented. They're very inward still. Uh, they're very much, um, they, their mission was to the Jewish believers, which is still a noble mission. But Paul probably encouraged them and said, hey, look, the Holy Spirit's at work in the Gentiles as well. Um, he then heads up to Antioch. Again, that's his commissioning church, giving joyful reports to, to, to the church there, the Gentile church there and likely taking a bit of respite, relaxing his weary body, and refreshing his wiry mind. But it wasn't long. He didn't stay, he didn't have his vacation for long. The spirit soon called Paul to begin his third missions trip, which began with a strengthening and encouraging tour through the cities of Asia Minor. So some of them are probably familiar to you. Uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. Those are places where he and Barnabas, on the first missions trip, had planted communities of people who clung to the way of Jesus despite persecution. These are some of the cities where Paul was stoned almost to death. Um, He was run out of town after town after town in this area. And as he goes back, he's welcomed. He experienced none of the persecution he had once encountered there, probably in part thanks to the favorable ruling from Gallio in Corinth. Soon, Paul would be able to make his way to Ephesus to stay for an extended time. In fact, we find out for two years. But in the meanwhile, as Paul is undergoing the journey highlighted behind me on the big map omissions, a very interesting ally is rising to prominence in Ephesus. There's just one problem. This ally is missing a crucial ingredient. So let's read verses 24 to 28. Meanwhile, so while Paul is doing this journey around around the Middle East, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos is a cool guy. When I think of the name Apollos, I think of two things that are totally awesome in different ways. I think of my favorite food on planet Earth, Angie, which is baked spaghetti from Apollos in Westlaw. Apollos steak and pizza. Their baked spaghetti is my favorite. It's so good. And the other awesome thing I think about, is James Brown, who became a cultural icon and musical legend when he released his live album, James Brown Live at the Apollo, um, which launched funk music into the mainstream. Hugely influential. The way that I drum is is largely can be dated back to this album right here. Um, so when I think of Apollos, those are the two things I think about. Just totally legendary, awesome things in my life. Spaghetti and drumming. Um... To that list of all-time great Apollos, let's add one more. An extremely passionate, intelligent, and faithful follower of Jesus who seemed to possess the whole package of what you'd want as a servant of Jesus Christ. He was a preacher, he was a teacher, super wicked smart, um, passionate, but who was cooking with incomplete ingredients. something missing with Apollos. See, Apollos was from Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt, it was the second largest city in the whole Roman Empire after Rome itself. Interestingly, like Ephesus itself, Alexandria was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Anybody know what the, the wonder in Ephesus was? Just In case somebody wants to show off some weird knowledge they know. The, the seven wonders of the ancient world, like the pyramids are the only one that remain. There's hanging gardens of Babylon. In Ephesus, it was the temple to Artemis. In Alexandria, there was this giant lighthouse. But it wasn't the lighthouse that was the true wonder of alexandria it wasn't the thing that made it renowned throughout the world at the time the thing that made alexandria renowned was its library it had the largest library in the world for for many centuries at that time they collected writings from all over the place and so alexandria became known as this place of great knowledge it was kind of like an ivy league university today it was it had that reputation and so it's not surprising that a staggering intellect like that of Apollos came out of Alexandria. Apollos knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards thoroughly and was able to apply that knowledge to his discovery of, this, of Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Messiah, who fulfilled everything that those older scriptures had anticipated. Moreover, Apollos was able to teach this message about Jesus as the Christ with a fire that Priscilla and Aquila immediately noticed and were drawn to. They heard him in the synagogue powerfully outlining how Jesus fulfilled the prophets by healing the blind, sick, and lame. They heard him in the synagogue teaching of how King David's psalms indicated that Jesus was David's heir to the throne. Or how the law of Moses was fulfilled and perfected in Jesus' teachings about humility and compassion and forgiveness and above all, love for God and for neighbor. Everything Apollos taught about Jesus was good and true. He was clearly a man filled with the Holy Spirit which is evident in Luke's description of Apollos as speaking with great fervor. That means there was a fire inside him, lit by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's the language of possession. It's the same kind of language they would use of possessed by an evil spirit. The man not only devoured the scriptures and articulated it powerfully, but he was aflame with the presence of God's Holy Spirit. It was the spirit that fueled him, and filled him, so much so that Apollos rivaled Paul himself in ability and authority. It's why many people think Apollos was the author of Hebrews. We don't know who was the author of Hebrews, but because Apollos was a powerful speaker to the Jews, and Hebrew is a book for Hebrew people, Jewish people, they think he's the author. In fact, this is how much, this is how much Apollos rivals Paul. In Corinth, um, where the church sends Apollos, there arose factions within the church. According to Paul's own writings in 1 Corinthians 3, there were those who were devoted to Apollos and those who were devoted to Paul. And it threatened to split the church. There was the Apollos people and the Paul people. Both Apollos and Paul, by the way, hated that. They didn't want it to be like that. But Apollos appealed to the high-minded intellectual elite. Paul appealed to the common person. He used language that was easy to read. Um, And there was these factions. That's how much of a powerhouse Apollos was. He rivaled Paul himself. We think of Paul as like the greatest, right? Apollos was just as great in his understanding and his preaching. However, despite this intellect, despite this passion and this power, Apollos was missing something. His lingering lesson to us, Apollos' lesson to us thousands of years later, is that no matter how intelligent you are, no matter how prestigious your IQ, no matter how renowned your reputation, no matter how convincing your message, there is always room for growth. You You never fully understand all there is to understand about the scriptures and about God himself. Never. Apollos knew only of John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. He apparently knew nothing about the greater baptism that followed. That was the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, when Jesus' presence descended to live with his people. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was the thing that John's baptism pointed to and anticipated. And so Apollos knew only of this anticipation. He knew only of the act of repenting, getting ready for the Messiah. He knew that was Jesus, but Apollos knew nothing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that God himself comes to live in and with his people. And so his teaching was inadequate. He was missing something. And so displaying an uncommon sort of wisdom and discretion, Priscilla and Aquila pull Apollos aside. They actually take Apollos into their home and completed the portion of his education that was most lacking. To me, this is a truly beautiful scene. Priscilla and Aquila are powerful in their own way. They're powerful in the way we talked about a communion. When, when the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, Jesus says, no, to be the greatest, you must become like a what? A servant. And that was Priscilla and Aquila. They were a married couple who were servants, not preachers. They were like the eggs, the emulsifiers, the binding agents that held the church together. They were content to build their tents and demonstrate love, encouragement, and hospitality to to all those who came into their bubble. And that included Apollos. And here's the real miracle. When, When Apollos, this intellectual elite, when he encounters these two humble servants who pull him aside and say, hey, listen, you're missing something, he had enough humility to accept this teaching from these two unassuming servants. That's the miracle. How many people do you know who are brilliantly smart and are totally firmed up in their intelligence. Like, you can't... They are unshakable in what they think they know. Sometimes that's me, honestly, even though I'm not unshakably smart. I still get firmed up in what I think I know. The humility of Apollos to accept the teaching and correction of these humble servants, Priscilla and Aquila, is beautiful. Apollos had been baking with baking powder. Priscilla and Aquila handed him a box of baking soda and soon the recipe was close to perfection. Apollos' humble willingness to climb down off his soaring intellect and allow himself to be corrected is a challenge to each one of us today. I may lack many of Apollos' ingredients. I don't have his brains, his passion, his depth of understanding, or his preaching ability. Apollos was a a two-in-a-generation kind of a teacher. It was him and Paul, that's it. But the one ingredient I cannot miss and we cannot miss, you don't need to be super smart, you don't need to be the most powerful preacher, but you cannot miss this. You cannot miss his humility. The same Holy Spirit who stoked the fires of Apollos' incredible mind was also the same Holy Spirit responsible for chopping his ego into little bits. And once his ego was chopped into little bits, it was it was fed into the, the Spirit's fire and the flames rose even greater and the fervency and passion of Apollos rose even greater because he was so humble and willing to grow. Many thousands would be warmed and guided by the glow of his inner fire because he was willing to accept correction and teaching. All because he got the ingredients straightened out. You're missing one thing, Apollos. You didn't know that the Holy Spirit came. And with that, he was more complete. I can tell that that we're getting tired. And maybe it's because I keep talking about food and it's lunchtime. But I have one more quick story to share. And it's very similar to the one we just read about Apollos. Um, after Apollos leaves Ephesus, Paul returns to Ephesus. So they're not in the same place yet. And when Paul returns to Ephesus, he makes a really strange discovery. So this is verses 1 to 7 of chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. I think it's funny that it's about 12. You can count to 12. Anyway. These 12 believers, like Apollos, were disciples of Jesus. They knew about Jesus. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Like Apollos, they had incomplete knowledge of baptism, having heard only of John's baptism, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And like Apollos, they needed one of our heroes to fill them in more completely. Apollos got that from Priscilla Aquila. These 12 get it from Paul. However, unlike Apollos, Luke makes it clear that these 12 men were more severely lacking in the most crucial ingredient of all. See, John the Baptist had a very specific purpose to his ministry of baptism. What was it? What was John's baptism about? Repentance and preparation. That's right, Yellow. John was the one who went through the cupboards and got all the mixing bowls and and measuring cups out, and then went to the fridge and got all the ingredients out, got ready for the master baker to come and, and work his masterpiece. John was the preparer. He's the one who got everything ready. He prepared the people's hearts for the arrival of the Messiah, and he made it clear that when the Messiah arrived, there would be the initiation of a new baptism. This is Luke 3, where it says, The people were all wondering in their their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm doing this baptism now, but it's only in anticipation of an even greater baptism to come by an even greater servant of God, the Messiah, in fact. So these 12, they knew about John's baptism. They knew about repenting, getting your heart ready to accept Jesus. They even knew about Jesus because Luke calls them disciples. That doesn't mean they're disciples of John. Otherwise, Luke, when he wrote this, would have said they were disciples of John. They were disciples, meaning disciples of Jesus. So they knew about Jesus, They knew about getting their hearts ready. They did not know about the Holy Spirit. Apparently, these 12 dudes, as much as they knew about John and his baptism, they knew nothing about John's real purpose, which was pointing people to Jesus. Once Paul makes this clear to them, like Apollos before them, they immediately correct their mistake and are baptized into the name of Jesus. They had repented and apparently had been anticipating the greater one to come, but they had not heard that the greater one had arrived. They didn't know that he was here. These 12 men are like me, baking cookies without eggs. The whole thing was prone to fall apart because they lacked the crucial ingredient, the Holy Spirit. That indwelling spirit of Jesus is the most crucial ingredient for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Unless unless the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are incomplete and wayward. In fact, th- this raises an interesting question. Luke calls them disciples in verse 1. A disciple is a learner. These 12 dudes apparently had a lot of learning to do. And I wonder if they weren't more like Chocolate chip cookies minus the chocolate chips. Can they really be called the thing that that they're named after? Are they truly disciples if they're missing the thing that they're named after? If they are following Jesus but don't have Jesus in them, are they fully disciples yet? And this story seems to suggest that no, they're not fully followers. They are not baptized into the name of Jesus. They are not fully saved. They are like chocolate chip cookies without the chocolate chips. They're missing the crucial ingredient. Certainly, they were cookies of some sort. They were in the the realm of discipleship. But without that one crucial ingredient, which is receiving the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, they couldn't be called by the full name. They were baking with baking powder instead of baking soda. Close, but not quite right. And the consequences were negative they were missing the most important thing, the living presence of the one that John had pointed to. They remind me of my friend Jordan Blasetti. Um, one time I went to Wendy's with him and he was excited to see that the, the bacon mushroom melt was back on the menu. He had been waiting for the bacon mushroom melt, waiting and waiting and waiting for it to come. And he got there and he found out it had been there for weeks already. And he had missed it. He'd, he knew it was coming. He didn't know that it was already there. And that's exactly what happens with these Ephesian believers. They knew the Holy Spirit existed. They knew that John had baptized getting ready for someone to come. They just hadn't put the pieces together. They didn't know he was there. He was available to them already. You could have the bacon mushroom melt now if you want. That is the Holy Spirit. And so once they were corrected about their crucial missing ingredient, they fixed their mistake. And immediately that missing ingredient made his triumphant arrival. It was like a mini Pentecost in the city of Ephesus. Along with the Holy Spirit came the signs of his power. So glossolalia, speaking in tongues. We talked about that a year and a half ago. And prophetic proclamations of glory and truth. The Holy Spirit came. We filled with the Holy Spirit. Began speaking in other tongues. These miraculous signs that now they are fully saved. There's probably a discussion about baptism that we can have here. Since that was what was at the root of both Apollos' and the 12 Ephesian believers' mistake. It's what they were missing. It's what made them incomplete was they hadn't been baptized with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the only occurrence of re-baptism, of being baptized for a second time in all of the Bible, is here. It's these 12 guys. But that's a conversation we can have after we've had snacks, since you're all hungry with my talk of (laughs) chocolate chip cookies, baked spaghetti, and bacon mushroom melts from Wendy's. So, that can wait. For now, I want to close by returning to my original metaphor. I said at the beginning, There's one crucial ingredient that links all of these stories, and that ingredient is the Holy Spirit. In the case of Paul winding down his second missions trip and beginning his third, that ingredient is found in abundance. He has tons of Holy Spirit in him. And the result is a perfectly baked, perfectly textured, perfectly delicious, finished chocolate chip cookie type of faith. The Holy Spirit had repeatedly spoke to Paul in visions. He said, don't go to Ephesus. He said, Go to Macedonia. He said, don't be afraid in Corinth. And he said, don't stay in Ephesus. Over and over, you get the impression that Paul is totally tuned in to the Holy Spirit. And each time Paul was receptive to the Holy Spirit's leading, he listened. That's what makes Paul's faith so delicious, his willingness to obey, to heed the the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Paul had all the necessary ingredients he had desire. He had passion, he had wisdom, he had thankfulness, he had submission, he had grace. He had everything you needed to be a, a powerful apostle, but it was all held together by his faithfulness to listen and obey the calling of the Holy Spirit. And the results? Delicious. For Apollos, so that's Paul, for Apollos the recipe was similar, except he needed to tweak his ingredients a little bit. His willingness to humbly accept teaching despite his status as an amazing teacher himself is what made him useful to the the divine chef known as the Holy Spirit. His flavor had been slightly off. Priscilla and Aquila, they heard him. they, They had tasted the flavor of his teaching. And something wasn't quite right. And so they patiently and lovingly adjusted his ingredients, going from a tablespoon of wrongness, which we all have, to now just a teaspoon, just a little bit of wrongness the kind of wrongness that we all have because we're all human and none of us understands perfectly. And the results tasted just as delicious as Paul's to the glory of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And finally, we have the 12 Ephesian disciples. They were missing the most crucial ingredient of all, having no idea that the Holy Spirit was even available to them. They were like chocolate chip cookies without the chocolate chips. Can you even call them what they are intended to be? Were they even fully disciples of Jesus if they didn't know that Jesus can live within them? I don't really know the answer to that question, but I think what this passage shows that is to be full believers, the Holy Spirit has to be living in. You. What that looks like today, I think is a little different from, from this sometimes, but they, they couldn't call themselves what they intended to be. They were missing the crucial ingredient. <clears throat> but once they learned what that missing ingredient was, they corrected their mistakes. They were popped into the oven of baptism and came out golden, crispy, and delicious. And so the message for us is clear. Like Paul, Apollos, and the 12 Ephesians, none of us is a perfect cookie, believe it or not. But we must be willing to allow our heavenly baker to tweak our ingredients through his Holy Spirit. He holds the recipe. It's his plan. He makes us delicious. He helps us sort out tablespoons from teaspoons as we grow closer to him. He deserves our thanks. He deserves our humility. He deserves our bag full of hair. Actually, if you want to do that, go for it. I don't recommend it, but. He deserves what we have to offer him. But mostly he deserves our faith, our willingness to grow in knowledge and in love through the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your work in us. Thank you that you guide us and lead us back to the Father. Thank you that you correct us. Thank you that you teach us and grow us. Help us to be receptive to that teaching and growing. Help us to be humble uh, like Apollos and the 12 Ephesian men were. Help us to. Um, to desire pure truth. Help us to find all the ingredients that make us into great disciples and great apostles for you. Holy Spirit, you are able to do that. You are able to put us together into something that, that brings you glory. And that's what we want. We want your glory through us. Um, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in us and among us. We praise you and we love you. Amen. to do with bacon <laughs> <laughs> no not bacon baking that's a conversation we can have after we've had snacks since you're all hungry with my talk of <laughs> chocolate chip cookies baked spaghetti and bacon mushroom melts from wendy's so